Thanks for listening to the Distribution Podcast. If you like this content, you may also enjoy the webinar I hosted featuring previous podcast guests, Heather Furstrom-Border and Jennifer Stevens, co-founders and managing partners at Alliance Global Advisors. You can now access highlights from the conversation on junipersquare.com forward slash GP resilience, all one word. You will learn about the best practices GPs can use to differentiate themselves from the competition and continue to build meaningful relationships with current and prospective investors. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Alex Robinson, co-founder and CEO of Juniper Square. I've had the pleasure of working under Alex's leadership for the last seven years through a very exciting period of growth for our company. During our conversation, we discussed the digital transformation of the private markets, how technology is changing fund administration, and what it's like being a venture-backed business in today's environment. I enjoyed this episode and hope you do as well. Let's get into it. Alex, thanks for joining me today. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Brandon. This is a special episode for me. It's not every day that you get to interview your boss and the person that you've worked alongside for many years. So uh, thanks for indulging me. The bar is getting higher. So uh, excited to dive into our conversation today. Can you start by sharing with our audience a little bit about you know your background and your journey leading you up to the formation of Juniper Square? Sure. Yeah. No, I'm I'm uh, I'm really excited to be here. I've been enjoying the podcast and enjoying seeing you with this new dimension of amazing podcast hosts, in addition to the OG salesperson at Juniper Square really built the company alongside me and the co-founder. So it's, it's pretty special to be here with you and to, and to see your latest chapter here with the podcast. So thanks for having me. Yeah. So, so Juniper Square is actually my third startup. You know, it takes me a few, few times to kind of get things right, usually. And the first two were, you know, all, all three startups have had a similar focus. I've always been very interested in the role that technology can play in making financial markets more efficient. And that was true for my first two startups. That's true for our mission here at Juniper Square, focused on private equity. The first two were not not as successful as we've been so far. Uh, One was a total wipeout. One, uh, we did okay. And the second one was great because it put me in the position for the first time of being an LP, writing checks to private equity funds, investing in real estate deals, uh, and that was ultimately the the, the genesis of uh, of Juniper Square, which we can talk more about. And, and prior to doing startups, I started my career at Microsoft. I was a product manager at Microsoft in a few other roles uh, for five or six years. And then I came down to the Bay Area where I live to go to graduate school for getting my MBA kind of in the mid-aughts time period. And what was it, you know, so so here you are, you had started two other companies. I mean, get us into the mindset of an entrepreneur. Clearly, you know, company building is in your DNA. You know, once you left Microsoft, this is the journey that you went on. How did you conceive of the idea for Juniper Square? And what was the problem that you saw that needed to be solved? Yeah, so this is back in 2013. So it's actually about 10, almost 10 years ago to the day. I remember putting together kind of like my first sketch and notes for Juniper Square in the June timeframe of uh, 2013. So it's crazy. It's, it's literally a decade, almost on the dot. And the genesis for the company was really for me as the first time stepping into the shoes of being an LP, investing in private equity. I didn't, I didn't, you know, uh, do that growing up. I didn't come from a family that was, you know, allocating to private equity. And so it's sort of a world that I knew a little bit about because I had classmates from business school who worked at private equity firms or worked at real estate investment firms, but I'd never been an investor. And in that that experience in 2013, uh, where we'd sold my second company and all of a sudden I had some liquidity to be a you know private markets participant, I was really shocked that for these huge asset classes in in private equity, I mean, there's you know tens of trillions of dollars globally in private equity that you know, subscription packets were coming to my house via FedEx trucks for me to fill out by hand and take down to a local notary to get notarized and then sending them back to the GP or the GP's lawyer's office on a FedEx truck. And I was just shocked that in the public equities markets, you know, buying a stock on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, I could go online. There were tools like Charles Schwab, Fidelity, name your your low-cost brokerage. 
And the entire experience was digital. You know, I create an account, I link up my bank accounts, I'd go shopping for security, I buy that security, buy, you know, share of Microsoft or whatever. And in the world of private equity, it was completely not digital. It had not, it was as though the 30 year transformation of the public equities markets from, you know, 1980 to 2010, where they really went from like Gordon Gecko style phone calls to your, you know, stockbroker who's going to charge you 10% for a trade to, you know, clicking buttons on a computer. That entire transformation in the market had not touched private equity. And I, as an entrepreneur, I just couldn't believe that that was true. <laughs> you know, I was like, surely it just must be, I'm not looking in the right place and that these GPs that I'm working with, you know, that, you know, just aren't choosing the tool set that's available. And, you know, you kind of start tugging on those threads, get interested in a problem and realize, no, like there's, you know, probably 10,000, maybe 20,000 really high quality GPs uh, in the world across, you know, real estate, venture capital, private equity, trillions of dollars of capital. And it's just moving around via spreadsheets and emails and PDFs. And I just, we saw a vision, my two co-founders and I, from the early days that really, these really huge and important financial markets should be mediated by technology. You know, that we should be doing the pre-trade and the trade and the post-trade in, 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 you know, open, stable software systems, not by FedEx truck. And that was really the genesis for the company. And, and we thought that, you know, somebody had to come along and kind of digitize all these private equity partnerships and do it at real scale. And if you did that with an ultimate eye toward enabling a market, you know, connecting GPs and LPs around a digital record of private equity ownership and making a market, that you could really have a transformative impact and, and the world of private equity could become digital. It could become accessible in the way that, that public equities have. You know, everyday investors can, can participate. That's a big part of what motivates us at Juniper Square. And now, you know, we're, we're I would say, you know, r- reaching some degree of adolescence. We're very early in that journey, journey still, but we have 2,000 GPs that we serve as customers. They're managing more than a million private equity positions across tens of thousands of funds, trillions of dollars of capital. And we're probably at about 10% share of the overall private equity universe that we're aiming to digitize. So it's still early innings. We're kind of well on our way towards that mission. So if you're interacting with Juniper Square today, you may, you know, take it for granted that this was always going to be the company that it is. But, you know, having kind of built the business from nothing, as you reflect back, are there any kind of like milestones or pivotal pivotal moments that, you know, you, you kind of look back to, to be like, aha, like when we were doing that, I wasn't sure if we should go right or left, but we went right. And as a result, you know, we're, we're on the right track or has it been, you know, fairly continuous building towards this vision that you set forth on day one? You know, it's really, it, it has been quite continuous. I'm honestly really I'm quite surprised at how continuous it's been. I mean, if you, and at some point, maybe we should publish these things publicly, but if you go back and look at like our seed fundraising deck, you know, from the first, you know, capital we raised at at Juniper Square from outside investors, it's sort of the same mission. It's the same set of activities. It's the same strategy written in, you know, 2015, I guess it would have been that we're pursuing today. So at some level, perhaps what's surprising about it is that this path that we put ourselves on, we still think is the right path to ultimately achieve our mission. And I can tell you that, you know, when we looked at the market, what we saw is that you have this dynamic, you have this adverse selection problem where the really great managers in real estate, in venture capital, in private equity, they have a line of investors out the door that want to work with them. Right. And so, and then conversely, the really great investors that every manager wants to work with because they're kind of a, you know, they're like a bell cow for the rest of the industry. You know, some of the more famous endowments, let's say that other people tend to follow. Those investors have access to all the managers that they could want. And so because you have this adverse selection problem, it really prevents you from going directly to building a marketplace. And around the time that we started Juniper Square, uh, the Jobs Act was passed. There were, there must've been a hundred companies that started in varying crowdfunding approaches, but this idea of going direct to building a marketplace, you know, we'll have these, all these managers post their funds and their deals online. And then, you know, we'll connect the buyers and the sellers and, you know, we'll just scale to infinity. And what you saw with most of those businesses was this adverse selection problem 
on display, which is the really great managers, the ones that you would want to invest with if you got the opportunity to do so, they're not interested. They're not interested in posting their investment opportunities on a public website. And so we saw that problem and we said, well, somehow you have to kind of go partnership by partnership in a little bit the same way that TurboTax went state by state and, and county by county and municipality by municipality in digitizing the tax code. You know, it's sort of big pro- project. You got to patiently work through it. But the fact that TurboTax has a digital representation of every state and, and kind of local tax code gives the user this very disruptive experience of being able to go through a really seamless, elegant process of filing a tax return. And we sort of took inspiration from that and, and really from OpenTable and their approach in the restaurant reservation space of being like sort of the ERP for table management and said, okay, well, we are we aim to kind of become the record of all these private equity partnerships. In the process of doing that, we're going to connect the GPs that manage those partnerships, the LPs that provide the capital to them around the same record of ownership. And we're going to do that with an eye toward building a consistent data model for the entire private equity industry. So every one of the many tens of thousands of funds on Juniper Square all tie back to a consistent structure, a, a, a consistent way of understanding you know, what is a private equity fund? What's the position in a private equity fund? And so we started with that end goal in mind. And let me tell you, like back in 2014, 2015, I would go around and be like, hey, we are building investor relations software for, you know, we started in real estate as our initial asset class. We're building investor relations software for, for real estate investment firms. I think we got like zero out of 100 investors in my first like target cohort list were interested in that idea because it seems so stupid and it seems so small. But to us, we were like, no, this is the path for, you know, really digitizing this very opaque, very structured market. And it ended up, you know, it, it has provided us a platform to now build a, a pretty reasonably sized fund administration business on top of our platform, uh, where I think we're the fastest growing fund administrator of all time. We'll soon be launching a capital markets business on top of that. That same platform. So it's sort of one of these, like, you got to go slow for a while and be willing to be misunderstood for a long while. And then ultimately, you've got something, what I hope will become to be seen quite disruptive. The idea that you need to digitize the relationship between the GP and the LP, you know, that is not something that, you know, the way that you framed it, where you took inspiration from OpenTable and, you know, TurboTax. I mean, why is it that what was happening before Juniper Square came along and this digitization took place? Because to me, or to somebody on the outside, it may seem obvious. Of course, you need to, you know, digitize the relationship and have an actual system of record. But what did the world look like kind of before solutions like Juniper Square existed? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was every GP did things their own way. You know, they it, and the record keeping system often was Excel. The communication system was email or, or, or phone call. I mean, literally emails like, please wire $30 million to this bank account, you know, and, and that's how it worked. And, you know, we spent a lot of time in the early days trying to think about and understand why was it the case that the public markets became digital and the private markets did not? Like, why? Because understanding the answer to that question really informs the strategy. And what we ultimately came to was in the public markets, the role of the regulator, you know, here in the US, the SEC is supremely important because it, they have an ability to enforce standards, right? So they can say to every Microsoft or Google or Coca-Cola or anyone who wants to list on an exchange, this is what it takes to list on this exchange. This is the way you have to do your financials. This is when you have to you know, have them submitted. And they can enforce changes to those standards. So they can say, instead of you know mailing us paper forms of these records, we're now going to require you to submit them digitally, right? And then boom, they've got the power to sort of shift the market to digital. So there's an element of standards and standards enforcement that the regulator plays. And then the other really important role that the regulator plays is a point of data aggregation, right? Where like all the, you know, issuers in the marketplace kind of have to funnel through. And the world of private equity conversely is just thousands of GPs and hundreds of thousands of LPs all connecting, you know, the whole idea of private equity is that, it, it, you know, these are unregistered securities. You're not going through the headache and cost of a public listing by relying on, you know, certain exemptions, like not allowing, you know, limiting the number of investors and only targeting wealthy people and so forth. 
And so by definition, you're avoiding the regulator. And so the dynamic is just one where kind of GPs and LPs make it up, you know, how there's some degree of, of standards. There's some degree of convention. There, there are some industry bodies that have pushed for a long time to try to get everybody to agree on common definitions for concepts of private equity reporting and ownership. But the reality is GPs kind of do it how they want to do it. Powerful LPs enforce and require, you know, their standards on, on, on GPs. And so that fact means that some company has to come along and be willing to embrace that heterogeneity. You know, you have to be willing to say, I'm going to take it as a given that GP A is going to do things differently than GP B. And, and I'm not going to try to get them to agree on a standard any more than TurboTax is like, geez, I'm going to try to get California and Washington state to agree on the same tax code so that I don't have to like digitize two different tax codes. That would be absurd. That's sort of the same approach that we've taken, which is, okay, well, there's a real like configuration problem here where you have to support a vast array of different ways of doing things that all tie back to core concepts, right? Like there's core concepts in private equity, like how much cash did the investor give to the fund? How much cash did the investor get back from the fund? When, et cetera. And, and that's the approach that we took. And it's, it's proven to have, have been uh, beneficial so far. So last question on the Juniper Square story before we kind of move on to the the next chapter. Juniper Square today is a company that serves, you know, the entirety of the alt space, private equity, venture capital, commercial real estate, you know, private credit. But the business started in real estate. Why did you choose real estate as the origin or the asset class of origin to, to build the business? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to build a business and... Uh, you know, having this being my third time and my co-founders had started other businesses before as well. So we'd sort of learn, you know, lessons the hard way many times. But, you know, if you're just three people getting started around a kitchen table, it's great to have like grand ambitions of what you'd like to do one day. But the reality is you're limited by what three people could do in a day. And so therefore, you want to try to reduce the scope of the problem that you're solving as much as possible, you know, to get to like the narrowest set of customers, the narrow set of, of problems that they have. So you can make pro meaningful progress against that narrow set. And so for us, we knew that meant that even though we had, that we saw this as a pan private equity problem, like there's, you know, anybody who has a fund has the type of, of problems that we work on, whether that fund invests in companies like Juniper Square, in aircraft leases, in buildings, in timber, whatever, a fund is a fund is a fund. And we knew that to be the case. But we also knew that we really needed to specialize and pick a narrow customer set early on to be able to meaningfully make progress for that customer and, and kind of get something off the ground. And for us, why real estate versus, say, focusing on venture or, or, or private equity, some of that is just a function of where I had a network, you know, like where did, where did I have personal relationships with GPs? Like that really matters, right? Because it's pretty hard to get a company to you know, uh, trust a startup with financial reporting and, you know, things like payments and other stuff that we do. The second was that real estate is of the private equity asset classes is probably arguably the most information intensive, which is to say LPs tend to want to know more about the portfolio details of their real estate investments than they do the portfolio details of their venture investments, let's say. So the load on kind of like information exchange between GPs and LPs is higher in, in, in real estate than it is in venture or private equity. And then the third reason is real estate for reasons that you're exploring with a lot of the guests on the distribution podcast here has traditionally been a laggard or really a slow adopter of new technology. And whereas say like hedge funds, you know, another asset class that are broadly considered to be part of alt alternatives we're very rapid early adopters of technology. And so the fact that so many of these real estate investment funds had been slow to adopt technology meant that we could come in and sort of leapfrog and, and, and have a comparatively much better solution for them than the status quo than some other firm that had invested a ton in, let's say, you know, building a custom solution to automate their investment operations or something like that. And so for those three reasons we focused on, real estate in the early days. 
And just to clarify for our listeners, when you're talking about fund, that can be a traditional fund, a closed-end fund, an open-end fund. It can also be any sort of a structure. You know, it can be a deal that, you know, in a in the real estate context, it might be, you know, an investment that's capitalized at the, you know, asset level that's not necessarily living in a fund structure. Is that correct? Yeah, I use the word fund loosely. I mean, I could use the word investment entity, you know, to be more precise. It's it's uh, it's kind of a mouthful, but you know, we, we, we support everything from like in real estate, it's very common to do joint ventures. It's very common to raise money in SPVs that are formed to say, go buy an apartment building from individual investors. Yeah. It's very common to have closed end funds. It's very common to have open end funds. In fact, much more common in real estate to have open end funds than it is. You see it quite rarely in venture. In fact, I can only think of really an N of one now with Sequoia's fund and venture that are truly open, very common in real estate. Uh, so yeah, we support all of it from open to closed to, you know, Cayman based to US based to individual SPVs to JVs and kind of everything in between. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's helpful context. So, you know, as part of the journey, we, we, the company started as a SaaS platform kind of running, you know, what, what would be a, a kind of traditional SaaS, which is software as a service playbook and pricing. And a few years ago, we, you know, the business moved into launching a fund administration business. How did fund administration, you know, first of all, why did you choose to enter the fund administration space? And how does that fit into, you know, the overall, you know, business, long-term business plans or business goals? Yeah. So, you know, I view our job as to take care of, and Jeff Bezos is popularized and is credited with this term, certainly not mine, but to take care and do all of the undifferentiated heavy lifting for GPs around their investment partnerships that are common to all GPs that no GP wants to do that are, you know, not going to differentiate them from their peers so that they can be focused on investing and creating value through their investment strategies. And so that means that things like securing capital call workflows or treasury operations or moving money securely or reporting on their investments or, you know, doing accounting on their investments. Like these are things that are, that really no one GP can really specialize in. They're not going to raise more money than somebody else if they got a really great accounting operation. And so our strategy as a business is to say, look, the the private equity partnership is sort of the core focus for us. And we look at that partnership and we say, what are all the things that the partnership needs that are undifferentiated across all of these different managers and that lend themselves to a scaled provider, you know, providing a solution for, for many GPs. So we can now work on a problem area and apply that solution to 2000 GPs, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of partnerships and no one GP, not even, you know, the biggest like Brookfield or, or, or Blackstone they have that same uh, level of, of scale. And we've always been very clear that, you know, that our strategy is to support the GP, you know, right up into the boundary of their investing activity. So we're never going to get in the business of competing with our GPs, never going to go raise funds that compete with them in the market but all the sort of back middle office stuff, even front office stuff that they really shouldn't be doing. We want to build solutions for them and, and bring it onto the platform. And so fund administration for us is really the first of many of those types of businesses that will build around the, the private equity partnership. It's a really huge market. It's a huge TAM. And it was a big unsolved need for our customers, even though we serve 2000 GPs today, but it's still the case that a majority of them are in real assets. So many of our real assets managers were either deeply dissatisfied with their current uh, fund administrators or were still managing fund administration in-house. So it was an area that our customers were pushing us towards saying, hey, we're, we're really dissatisfied with the status quo here. And it's an area where it, it's still largely been untouched by technology. And the, the sort of fund administration business is one where there have been innovations in it, you know, like it kind of started as the back office really of, of some really big banks. And, you know, a lot of those back offices were spun out in the nineties. And then there was a wave of, of, of kind of industry consolidation. And that was like the first 
wave and fund administration of, of, of sort of value creation. And there was a lot of private equity backers that were playing in that, you know, buying subscale fund admins, combining them together and selling them off as a bigger, more profitable entity. And that was sort of wave one. And then wave two was like largely taking advantage of human capital arbitrage. So, you know, you know, if you can do something more cheaply in a low cost labor market than you can do, say in New York, well, have a fund accountant be based in that low cost labor market instead of in New York. And you can drive, you know, improvement and margin that way. And then we believe very deeply that there's a big third wave coming to these types of accounting oriented businesses, which is so much of the work that it is to, to be a fund administrator, that it is to do the fund accounting can and should be automated by software and will be automated by the software. And that was really what made this very compelling for us is huge market. Our customers are asking us for solutions, are very dissatisfied with the status quo. And we believe it's an opportunity that lends itself to real differentiation through technology, which is what we look for, and also is strategic to ultimate capital markets scenarios that we want to enable for our customers. So if we're administering the fund and we hold the complete book of record for the fund or the investment entity in Juniper Square, it's a lot easier for us to enable a secondary trade, for example, around that fund if we are the administrator of record than if we just have a thinner representation of that same fund in, in investor relations software. We've coined this term modern administration. And so it sounds like you know, from your perspective, modern administration is really about kind of the the combination of the traditional service model, but the overlay of technology to drive efficiency. Is there something more to it than that as you look at the the kind of macro environment or the landscape across the different providers that exist today where you think there's additional opportunity for disruption or change? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we have a very healthy respect for the fact that you know, if you are a CFO of a private equity fund or, or series of private equity funds, you are probably going to want to, a relationship with the human, you know, not just with software. Like, you know, even if software can theoretically automate the entirety of, of what it is to be a, a fund administrator, you are going to want, you know, this is a consultative relationship, right? It's it, you, you, you want to pick up the phone and call someone and be like, Hey, I'm, you know, we're thinking of starting a credit fund. Like what have you seen? Or, Hey, we're thinking about moving the, the fund to Cayman. What have you, you know, like there's a lot of interaction that can and should happen between the, the private equity firm and the fund administrator. And it should be a consultative relationship. And so our view is that that human to human connection is not going away at all. And in fact, will become a point of differentiation, an increasing point of differentiation over time. It's like, can you actually call someone up and can they have an intelligent conversation with you and, and give you advice? So that is always going to exist. But so much of the work that happens today in fund administration is happening kind of without any tooling. It's like, you know, humans are taking like data out of this sheet and then like copying it over to this sheet. And then another human is coming in and like looking to see that that work was done correctly. And then maybe a third human is like summing the columns of that sheet or something to see that the calculation makes sense. And that way of working does not make any sense. It sucks for the fund accountant. It sucks for the customer because like all the work's happening in a black box. They don't, they can't audit it. They can't see where the work is. And it's kind of crazy that we take it for granted that we can, you know, whatever, order a pizza on DoorDash and, you know, see exactly where that pizza is. <laughs> Has it left the restaurant? Is it in transit? It's coming at 7.13 PM, you know, and then you have these really high value, complex relationships with your fund administrator. And the whole thing is like a black box. You're like, I have no idea what's happening. I have no idea where my data is. I have no idea where the work is. So to us, modern administration, modern administration is about maintaining that and, and increasing even that investment in the service relationship in the, you know, sort of the, the notion of that relationship being about advice and consultation, but that it should be technology and software that's helping to do the work. And so that the client can interact with that. Like it's, you know, so many of our clients are so frustrated with the status quo because they don't have access to their data, the basic stuff, you know, like they, they only get access to their data in the form of a PDF that's sent to them or, you know, so, so there's a lot of just principles of, of how technology systems work today 
that if applied appropriately to this problem set can really create a revolutionary experience for the customer in the same way that like we take it for granted now that we can just track the status of a FedEx shipment by putting a number into a web page and that's like way better for the customer than calling FedEx on the phone <laughs> you know so not every interaction should be via the phone via human to human and so we're trying to limit that set to what really makes sense and have technology do the heavy lifting on the rest because it's so reliant on humans i think there's been at least in real estate somewhat of a reluctance to move towards you know outsourcing you made the comment earlier nobody's going to allocate money with you because you have the best back office but that's not to say having a great back office or back office support isn't important how do you think about kind of this dynamic around you know the industry shift towards outsourcing and if you had a crystal ball that you could look into you know where do you think we're going to be you know 3 5 years from now on the outsourcing topic more broadly well it seems pretty clear to me that if you're in private equity or venture capital or real estate you can just look to the world of hedge funds and and that is sort of the future right that 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 asset class is much further ahead when it comes to these dynamics and i think you know bernie madoff you know, probably did more than anyone else to contribute to the the rapid shift toward outsourcing fund administration but i think what people realized you know like today if you're a hedge you know we want to go out and start a hedge fund together there's zero chance we're going to be successful at raising capital if our story is that we are going to self-administer that fund, right? Because the, the investors who are going to contribute money are going to be like, no way, I want to have an independent party looking at and, 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 and taking care of the books. I want to have an independent party who's the custodian for that capital. Because even if I trust that manager, you always have to be thinking about the Bernie Madoff uh, scenario and so it seems very clear to me that, you know, probably 9.9 .9 out of 10 hedge funds are third party administered today. That will be the case in real estate. That will be the case in, you know, other real asset um, categories, private equity, venture capital. Venture capital already is pretty, pretty, you know, dominant on, on third party outsourcing. Private equity is behind that and real estate is very far behind that. And I, I think that the reasons for this are one, LPs prefer it. Right. So, you know, this just makes common sense. Like I sleep better at night as an LP in the funds that I invest in. If there's a third party that's preparing the books, then if I'm relying solely on the GP to do that Two GPs actually prefer it because most GPs, after they think about it for a while, are like, wait a minute, I'm not trying to build a really huge team of people that I want to manage. And I don't want to manage a super complex accounting operation. I just want to do my private equity style of investing, whatever that is. It create economic value for my stakeholders. So it's better for the GPs, it's better for the LPs. And, and you sort of have that dynamic and then scale providers can create a better experience than any one GP can. And you get all those three things together. It seems very clear to me that you know, the, the industry will be fully outsourced within you know, probably the next decade. I think it'd be very hard to raise a real estate fund if you don't have your fund administrator picked out in advance. Growing a fund admin business is, you know, operationally intensive, right? It's, it's very different. And, you know, people are at the core of that. I mean, one of the things that I hear a lot about when I'm talking to our clients in the market is some of the struggles around attracting and retaining talent, especially a ta talent that's specialized in fund accounting. How do you think about, you know, how is Juniper Square positioned to both find and, and attract and then retain, you know, the best people to be able to support our clients? Yeah, it's definitely a huge issue. I mean, our our you know fund administration business is growing at like five hundred percent a year, and it's it that's a lot of people that you have to hire uh, to, to to meet that kind of growth. And the reality is, whether it and you know, this is you know we have the same challenge in software engineering and other parts of our business. Although interestingly, with kind of the you know the higher interest rate, higher layoff environment, the dynamic with software engineers has definitely changed relative to a few years ago. Uh, but in the world of fund accounting, it just there, there's some basic facts. And, and one of those is that there are not enough fund accountants in the world for the demand. There just aren't. And so you got to deal with that in one of two ways. One is you got to figure out how to make more fund accountants, right? So that's going direct to university hiring, 
you know, and, and training people over time in the, the trade and the craft and, and sort of developing them from within versus just going out and trying to find people who are already skilled up on the uh, a job market. That's one thing. And then the second thing is you have to figure out how to make the, the, the worker much more productive, right? And this is where technology and tooling uh, can come in. So if, you know, a couple of years from now, as we think is reasonable, a, a fund accountant at Juniper Square can do 10 times as much work as a fund accountant at a kind of regular accountancy that's not a tech company, then we need one-tenth the number of accountants for the given, you know, size of business that the peer set does. And so we're, we've got kind of plans that are pushing on both of those vectors of, you know, just how do we create more fund accountants in the world by going direct to university hiring? And, and that's not a small thing. You've got to, these people want to be CPAs. They got you to sort of train them up and have development programs and teach them how to work. And there's a lot to it. And then our technology roadmap of really transforming what it is to be a fund accountant and, and making them much more productive. And the union of both of those things is kind of the, I think the answer, at least that's what we think. Final question on fund administration, but as you look back on the last few years since we've been in this space, what's been kind of your biggest learning or aha moment? What's been most surprising to you, either you know positive or negative? That's a great question. What has been most surprising to me? Well, I, I definitely have a lot of respect now for how hard it is to build a mission-critical services business like fund administration, I have much more respect for that now than I did say five years ago. You know, it's the type of business where getting it right, exactly right, really matters a lot. You know, you're not saying to an investor like, here's approximately a million dollar distribution, (laughs) give or take a hundred K, you know, like pennies and tens of pennies and hundreds of pennies matter. And the, just the volume flows, like we're, we're at pretty significant scale. So any given month, there's tens of billions of dollars being raised via our subscriptions tools. There's tens of billions of dollars going out off the ledger into LP banking accounts. And so there is a mission criticality component to what we do, where we have to have a very healthy respect for not breaking anything and not screwing anything up. And then that there's a tension there between the desire to innovate and move quickly and, 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 and sort of disrupt and so I think the probably the most surprising thing has just been how complicated these, you know, services delivery businesses can be. And I think when we first were entering the fund administration business, I kind of remember sitting down with the executive who really built that business from the ground up for us on this napkin and sketching out for her. And I was like, okay, so fund administration is going to be our first business. And then there's four more right behind it. You know, like you'll work on those like a couple quarters from now once we get this one stood up. And, you know, little did I know how naive that was. So earlier on, you mentioned, you know, this desire to digitize the relationship between the GP and the LP, the partnership, if you will, which would or could be in service of, you know, making private markets more efficient. And you alluded to the kind of potential or future launch of a capital markets business. Let's talk a little bit more about, you know, what is your vision there? What is capital markets at Juniper Square look like? Or what does it not look like? And then, you know, how do you think about building a two-sided marketplace, which is, you know, no small feat? And what what do you need to do to be successful there? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in terms of like, what does that look like? Or what's the end? Like, how would we know over the course of, you know, say multiple decades of effort in this area, if we were successful? And the way that I think about that is primarily about participation. You know, so today, very few people can participate in the ownership of private equity directly. You know, like, like maybe you're a, a teacher and, you know, your pension is provided by the, you know, state in which you were a teacher and that pension fund invests in private equity. And okay, so there's some degree of exposure there. But just in terms of everyday investors being able to invest in and hold private equity as they're able to invest in you know, stocks like Coca-Cola or Apple today is virtually non-existent. And so I take inspiration and look at like what happened with the NASDAQ exchange. So NASDAQ was launched in the early 1970s and really was just like a, you know, in the early days, a way of printing a stock 
price on a screen. It wasn't like a electronic trading and settlement system from day one, but it, but it really has become that. And over that period of time, stock you know, public stock ownership by U.S. households has gone from fifteen percent to sixty percent, a fourfold increase in household participation and ownership of public stocks. And I think the same type of broadening of participation is very possible in private equity. And I think that'd be a really great thing for the world because there's a tremendous amount of value that's created in real estate and venture capital and, you know, buyout and growth private equity that, you know, maybe very indirectly reaches that teacher via the pension funds investment. But it'd be awesome if that teacher could invest and participate more directly. So our ultimate vision for the work we want to do in capital markets is driven by that goal. It is about broadening who can access and participate in owning and benefiting from these really productive, important corners of our financial ecosystem. And that takes the shape of doing a lot of work to remove cost from the system. You know, so today, if like every time you want to invest in a private equity fund, some lawyer that charges $1,000 an hour needs to review your subscription agreement and, you know, like, it's never going to scale, right? It's You have to get the marginal cost of a trade down close to near zero, like it is in the world of, of public equities. And so that means things like automating subscriptions, automating redemptions, automating fund formation, automating the movement of money. And then it includes, you know, what we're really interested in is how do you provide efficient, diversified exposure to the investor, to private equity? So, you know, if you look at the rise of passive funds in the world of public equities, it's been tremendous of going from, you know, no dollars held in these ETFs and, and, and index funds to many, many trillions today. And it's a really great way, you know, if, you, if you're not a stock picker, like I'm not a public stock picker, I'm in the Warren Buffett camp of just like buy the S&P and, and, and hang on. There's no way to invest in private equity like that today, you know, and, and no individual investor is going to be out trying to pick individual individual GPs. So we think there's a role that we can play in bridging that divide. And then the third big area is one of the things that the public markets benefit from is having very deep and, and, and liquid markets for, for secondary trading. And so we take it for granted that you can buy that share of Apple today and then wake up tomorrow and change your mind and sell it and get your money back. And that's not how private equity works. You know, your money's locked up for 10 plus years. And to some degree, you have to respect the fact that a lot of the assets that the private equity funds are investing in are themselves illiquid. So you can't just like manufacture liquidity out of thin air. But we do think that th that this is where the industry is going is toward offering more liquidity and, and the ability to remix the ownership without having to change the underlying composition of the assets. And, and we think there's a big role that we can play there over time, just given the, the point of aggregation and the scale that we've collected of private equity ownerships. Again, we've got a million positions where each one of those positions have an LP attached to them, a bank account attached to them, a subscriber profile attached to them. So we ought to be able to enable things like secondaries trading in a way that no one else can. And so that's really how we think about capital markets. It's about access. Ultimately, that's the ultimate yardstick that we're measuring ourselves against. And there's a bunch of, of different areas where we think we can innovate over time. And it's a big, you know, this is not like we do this next quarter and we're done. This is a big sustained effort over a long period of time to have an impact. I think it's super exciting. And obviously we're early on in the journey. I I, uh, I have experienced that myself. And I think, you know, the, the best is certainly yet to come. Changing gears a little bit, you know, we're recording this in June of 2023. You know, the macroeconomic environment is you know, uncertain to say the least, you know, we just kind of nearly avoided a catastrophic crisis of, uh, you know, in, in the United States here with our debt ceiling. How do you see the world, you know, the macroeconomic today through the lens of a, you know, venture back technology company, you know, through that kind of entrepreneurship perspective, what are you looking at? What are you feeling kind of what's impacting you and the business and the businesses that we support based on the macro environment? Sure. So I think there's two ways to, to answer that question. One is just for like us as a venture-backed company. How do we think about the fundraising environment, going public, any of those types of topics? And then the other is we support 
many tens of thousands of private equity funds. So what are we seeing in terms of fund flows and new fund formation in, in private equity? And I can take both of those. So on the first one, you know, we looked at this last, really last spring, last April, not April of this year, but, you know, April of 2022 as really the market finally reacting and internalizing the the Fed rate hike and the speed of that. And there's a giant correction in public equities generally, but it hit high growth tech stocks extremely hard. I mean, there were companies that were down 80, 90% plus that were great companies. And, you know, really just coming off of the kind of crazy COVID, you know, sort of Fed fueled bubble. And we looked at that and we're like, look, we need to make sure that we as a company take the opportunity now to raise all the money that we think we'll need ever to control our destiny, even if that means we got to raise it at lower prices than we would optimally like to. So we were really quick to take that medicine. We raised another $130 million last year just to say, you know what, who knows what the financial future holds, but we need to make sure that our company is is capitalized for any one of those uh, scenarios. And so that has sort of taken us out of, taken the pressure off of this idea that we need to be tracking where the public markets are and IPOs or where the late stage growth fund funding environment is because we've sort of taken ourselves off the table as being a, you know, a seller into that market. And from everything I hear from peer CEOs and everyone else, it is still largely very, very closed in late stage growth fundings. You just, I mean, you may hear about one every now and again, but, but by and large, that market is still very, very frozen. And so that's not great news if you're, in a position of needing to, to, to raise money soon. And then more, you know, stepping back more broadly, you know, there's a few, you know, we look at the rate of new fund formation on Juniper Square. We look at the rate of digital subscriptions on Juniper Square. And I can tell you that the first half of this year is off to an extremely slow start. So like our count of digital subscriptions, you know, originated by our GPs in the first half of this year is like half of what it was in the first half of last year, our company has grown by 75% in that period of time. And this is not adjusting for that. So like, you know, base of GPs who could be doing subscriptions is 75% greater this year than it was last year. And the count of subscriptions is down 50%. So you just, we're just seeing this just like literally drop off in new fund formation in, in LPs allocating. And the stories are different across across asset classes, but across real estate, you know, things like infrastructure, VC, PE, even private debt, you know, and you can go look at PitchBook, Prequin, you know, pick your third-party data source where this is publicly available. Our data matches the publicly available stuff. You know, it's down 40, 50, 60% sometimes year over year. You know, I think in real estate, Q1 was the slowest quarter in the last five years in terms of new fund formation, the only bright spot is secondaries funds. So, you know, there's a little bit of a different story going on there, not surprisingly, but there's no question that there's a huge slowdown in private equity. And and this is supported by all this anecdotal evidence that, you know, we, we all have, but people are stretching their existing funds longer, waiting to raise, you know, for another quarter, another two or three quarters of whatever the case may be. And to a certain extent, there's a need for asset value. You know, there's still a big bid ask spread in a lot of these markets. You know, if you're a company like Juniper Square, why would you choose to raise capital now if you don't need to, unless you have the discipline like we did to say, well, let's take our lumps now. Who knows what the future holds could get worse. And so companies are sitting on the sidelines with their old valuation, which is, you know, let's say 80% higher or 100% higher, who knows what, than the public market's equivalent. And that trade's not happening. You know, we all are tracking the office market, right? Where it's just buildings are not trading, but everybody knows in the, in the handful of trades that you do see are happening at like 60% discounts to the last marked price. But the reality is there's no transactions happening. And so the sort of the market is seized up and so it's, until those bid-ask spreads narrow, until we start to see more transaction volume, we're not going to see the fund flows into these asset classes because everybody's sort of waiting 
you know, all the LPs are waiting for that vintage where it's like, yeah, great. Now is clearly the time to invest in office, right? Like you want to invest in office post-correction, not, not pre-correction. One of the things leading up to, you know, the latest inflection point where the markets, you know, went south was, you know, the venture markets really valued growth, growth, growth. And, you know, my understanding is that as a result of the degradation of the macro environment, the venture markets are really valuing efficiency. Talk a little bit about kind of what that shift between growth and efficiency means at Juniper Square, but more broadly, I mean, it impacts everybody who has venture capital in the startup ecosystem, all of our peers and, you know, all the technology and services companies out there. Yeah. Well, I think that there was a, certainly I'm trying to, I'm trying to separate the craziness of the COVID era from the like general properties of the 15 year boom, like the, you know, zero interest or close to zero interest boom over the last, you know, a period since the global financial crisis. And I think that there, for a long time, there was so much trust in the investing universe that as long as businesses had a certain shape and a set of characteristics, like most of their revenue was recurring, the gross margin was high, it was a tech company, that those companies could just burn whatever it took to, to, to grow quickly because like at any point in the future that they wanted to, they would just like flip this bit and all of a sudden they would become these cash flow machines. And that was a very, very deeply held belief. And it enabled everyone to kind of adopt the shorthand of valuing all these businesses as a multiple of revenue instead of, you know, the actual economic theory would suggest, which is like a multiple of the free cash flow that they, that they generate. And that was something that was, that was like a 15 year thing that happened. That wasn't just a COVID era thing. And I think what's changed is everyone has realized that, wow, if you're at a 5% risk-free rate environment, you know, ca having cash really matters. Like having that cash today really matters. Like your business being profitable today, not five years from now, really matters. And all of a sudden the ability to, you know, take a dollar and convert that to free cash flow today is worth so much more to an investor than your idea for disruption 10 years down the road, you know? And that has been a huge sea change. It happened very, very quickly. You know, there's a 15 year period of something and all of a sudden within like six or eight months, everyone has, has completely changed their tune. But, you know, if you're a late stage investor and you look at the public markets and you're like, wow, here's a company that's trading at five times next month gap revenue, right? Or you know, maybe six times is where the median tech company is trading right now. And then you look at some private markets company that did their last round at 100x, you know, ARR, whatever, however that company defined ARR, but probably not gap revenue. Like there's a, literally a mile of difference between those, those two valuations. And that's why the market is, is really stuck. And so I think the companies that, you know, what we've tried to do we, we, again, we took our medicine here. We, we restructured the company. We were relatively quick to do it last year to say, okay, we've got to get the cost profile of the business onto a sustainable path, given this new set of facts of the world that like we're operating in a 5% rate environment, not a 0% rate environment. And then, you know, we don't try to predict the future. I don't know when new fund formation will return to, or if it'll ever return to like, you know, Q4 21, Q1 22 levels in private equity. But we just assume that the current depressed rate is the status quo for the future. And then we need to be able to operate through that. And we need to be profitable through that. And so that's how we've approached it. And I think the well-run businesses are approaching it the same way. And then I think there are some entrepreneurs out there that are just honestly rolling the dice on time that like something's going to change a quarter from now, two quarters from now, the market's going to come back. And that 100x ARR round that they did is not going to seem so crazy. And, you know, I'm, I'm all in on that trade with those entrepreneurs. I hope that they're right. But, you know, it's hard to, hard to run a business that way. So as we begin to conclude here, I want to focus the, the last you know, few minutes on kind of what you see going forward. We talked a little bit about you know, the origin story of Juniper Square, the development of our software and administration business and emergent capital markets initiatives. You know, today there's a lot of talk around, you know, the 
power of technology with LLMs, large language models, and the GPTs coming out, what do you think is kind of the next wave of kind of technological disruption or technological evolution over the next, you know, three to five years? I, I mean, I think it'd be pretty hard to say anything other than than generative AI and these these large language models that ChatGPT has popularized. It, it just it really, you know, it, it affects different types of businesses differently. Like a lot of the demos that people see are of like, you know, hey, I want to generate some code to build a website, you know, completely clean environment, just like build me a web page, put a button here, put a picture there. And, you know, generative AI is like really good at those types of scenarios. And in our type of case, we have both like a really large existing code base that has a lot of context in it that engineers have to know how to fit like their new features into and make sense of. And and these large language models are less good at that. And then the other thing is these large language models are really good at being approximately right. <laughs> you know, like they, they, if you're an expert in a field and you spend any time with them, you realize, okay, they're, they're really good at like that surface level, you know, asking chat GPT questions at the surface level will give you these very compelling answers, like at the level that a, you know, journalist write, might, might write, might write an article on a topic. But if you're an expert in a topic, you realize actually they're factually incorrect. They're all over the place. They can't make the right inferences. And in our type of technology problem, getting the numbers right exactly right matters a tremendous amount. And so I think on average, some of these tools might be less impactful for our type of business than they are for other types of business businesses, but we're taking it super seriously. And a lot of it is too, just taking the tool sets that are obvious and get developed elsewhere and incorporating them into our business to make our customer support people more productive, to make our salespeople more productive. You know, these are the basic building blocks that every business owner, you know, even private equity, real estate investment firm, business owners need to be doing. Doesn't mean you have to like have your own engineering team generating these language models, but you need to be able to incorporate them and change your business to adapt to these technology disruptions. Cause this really is a platform shift in the same way that like mobile, or I think it will become to be seen a platform shift in the same way that mobile was a platform shift or web initially was a platform shift, which means that businesses need to figure out how to retool around it versus just think of it as like a, you know, an add on to the business. And then there, there are areas within our role of, you know, we have many millions of documents collected on our system. We have an extremely extensive record of private equity ownership across many decades of history, oftentimes. And so we do think there, and we're experimenting with roles that these new technologies can play in, in creating new products for our customers, new ways for them to interpret, you know, their own investment performance, their own data, new ways to draw conclusions, new way to get insight out of data that might be locked up in documents, let's say. So I think there are going to be whole new products that get created that are really interesting. So that's the one where I think we're, I'm very interested in it. And as a company, we're taking it very seriously. So final question, you know, building a startup is hard. Building a startup over the last you know decade, or especially the last few years is arguably even harder. Yet, you know, every day you wake up, you're leading the business, you know, we're marching forward and we're doing, you know, we're doing so at a very rapid clip. What are you most excited about and, or what keeps you kind of motivated to, you know, you know, get up every day and continue to build for our customers and for the industry? Well, you know, we, we've sort of started out with this vision that is the same vision that we have today, which is really ultimately about, you know, broadening access to private equity ownership. And that's, for me personally, a very inspiring vision for our employees. It's an inspiring vision. I think many of our customers are excited by that vision. And as long as every day you wake up and you feel like even on the hard days, you're just inching, you know, it can be inches, it might be centimeters some days, you know, sometimes it's leaps and bounds, but you're, you're making progress toward that vision becoming a reality. That's a very inspiring. There's a lot of reward that comes from that, even on hard days. And and it's been crazy to navigate through all of us, you know, having to go through COVID and then 
you know, the macro environment shifting so rapidly, and there's been so much to navigate through. But that just trying to stay true to are we making progress incrementally toward the vision is kind of like the unifying force. And that's what keeps us going every day. And that's what will keep us going hopefully 10 years from now. And, you know, it will take that long to have the kind of impact we want to have. Awesome. Well, Alex, I really appreciate you joining me today and sharing your insights. It's uh, it's always great to hear you describe the your personal journey and the journey of Juniper Square. And I remain as excited today as I did on the day I joined the company many years ago. So thanks. Thanks again. All right. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Or you can find me on Twitter at B You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at juniperquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.